Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Welcome to this special edition of Achtung Millwall, featuring a conversation held in 2015 regarding the involvement of Millwall players and football more widely in the conflict of the First World War. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Re-released today on Remembrance Sunday as a tribute to all who featured and fell in that almighty conflict. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Neil Crazy Hawks Andrews. Big welcome back to the show, Neil. Hello. We are doing something that we've been talking about for some time. Didn't get it together last year when the actual anniversary of the First World War took place. But you and me have been cooking up for a little while to talk about the impact of both of the World Wars 
on Mill Football Club, but also on football more generally. Yeah, yeah. So the lead into this, I thought, would be just to mention uh, the card display that I thought um, went very well at Watford last last year, Watford away. Um, it just struck me, and sometimes we live in a bit of a bubble at Millwall, but it just struck me how these cataclysmic events had national significance, and it sounds stupid and trite when you say that back, but to see that striped card display at the Watford end with a poppy in the middle, I found quite moving. It was, it was, it was an impressive display. Obviously, every village in the country, every town has got its first World War Memorial. Catastrophic event in our history. Yep, and um, I think goes without saying, I think every single club um, lost a man or lost a player during the war or lost someone connected to the club. Even Celtic. Celtic lost six. Even Celtic. Even Celtic. What, Celtic. What, the Irish uh, yeah. Rovers themselves. Yeah. Celtic, um, yeah, they lost six at least during the First World War, including a player called Peter Johnson, who actually played in the Cup Final in 1914. He died two years later. And they're the ones that always don't really, um, should we say... Respect the poppy, or they struggle with it. They they? they do struggle. Um, They struggle it with reasons you probably could understand if you wanted to really be bothered about it. But they also seem to forget their history and the fact that you know they had a large contingent of their players and club go to the First World War and give their lives for the cause, which they always forget about. As did many, many Irishmen from what is now the Irish Republic and then was part of the United Kingdom separate subject entirely but perhaps an awkward part of history that many owe for there and perhaps even here want to disregard it's, it's an awkward truth isn't it it is a very awkward truth but it's kind of funny because um, football is kind of instinctively involved with the first world war in that you know most of the recruiting drives um, took places at the grands you know you, everyone's heard of the football battalion so I mean they used to you know kind of have drives at recruitment at football grounds including funnily enough at Millwall's uh, Frank Buckley's troops appeared during an FA Cup replay Millwall v Bolton in February 1915 of course that year it was the FA Cup and it was the khaki final as it was come known yeah and they used to go there they went to um, Clapham Orient as it was then known and you know really tried to get players uh, not players sorry get soldiers for the calls and it was a big cr- kind of recruiting drive um, but there, there was kind of a, another side to it um, obviously you remember all the players people remember the football battalion etc yeah, yeah. um, but there was people that you know felt that footballers should be there to serve their country not play football because originally they let the season continue yeah um, and not everyone was in favour of it. You know, I've got a quote here in the Times, a story in AF Pollard was quite vehement in his opposition and he stated that every club that employs a professional footballer is bribing a much-needed recruit from enlistment and every spectator who pays his gate money is contributing towards a German victory. And in the Edinburgh Evening News, there was a letter from someone who just called themselves a soldier's daughter who said that a heart should be renamed and from there on down should be known as the White Feathers of Midlothian because everyone saw them <laughs> as kind of, not draft dodgers, but you had this big kind of um, volunteer people, you know, all the yeah. powers, recruitments, all, you know, big drives. But football was allowed to continue, so people saw them as shirking from the calls, which yeah. wasn't the case. So, you know, it became very much involved in the war and everyone knows about, you know, the... the First Christmas, and they yeah, had the truce, yeah. they had the game. 
what they say again, you know, the, the last survivor said it was just a free for all 50 on each side, no one kept score, you know, it was just basically a game of football. Um, but, you know, it went on and on and on. And what is a little known fact is that the last soldier that was killed on Armistice Day of all dates, funny enough, the yeah. last British soldier killed... The last person shot, yeah. Um, ...on the Allies side was believed to be George Brooks. He played for Derby County and was a Derby County player. So the last person to die in the First World War on the side of the British was a Derby County player. Wow. So it's always been, you know, there or thereabouts within the war. I think it's, it, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I've done a little bit of reading. I've been reading the... Uh, uh, the, the James Murray book, Lines of the South, and just going back to the controversy at the start of the First World War, it began obviously in August 1914, a totally different world. I, I, um, it, nowadays we look back and it, it just looks like a different, so literally a different planet. Yeah. Um, it began with a great sense of enthusiasm. I don't think that we were alone in this. I think this went across Europe. I think the Germans also... Um, saw this as, a, as almost a form of sport. It was seen as the, the greater game. I've got a poster here urging young men to join up and play the greater game, as they put it, and join the football battalion, strangely. Posters are always good on the radio. <clears throat> yeah, posters work well. But it's a, it's, I, I just find these, these recruitment posters, you can see them online, you don't have to look far to find them, very moving because there's this kind of... Um, you know, healthy-looking boys in the trenches playing the greater game, as they put it. And this was the approach they took at many, many football grounds. It is. Um, I mean, we spoke about, you know, the, the football battalion going round doing recruitment drives. But the police used to go to the games that were taking place um, after the introduction of compulsory military service yeah. to try and catch anyone shirking their duty as well. So, yeah. you know, they used the games to try and catch people out. Achtung, Milbein. But, you know, the, the first year, the season continued, people felt it should, you know... Volunteer army at the start of it, wasn't it? Yeah, Kitchener's army. Yeah. Not Barry's, but, you know, pretty close. Um, but, you know, one said business as usual, so the season yeah. continued. And Scotland actually voted to continue the, um, the Scottish FA Cup all the way through the war. And people just saw it as kind of shirking a duty. It was a, a lot more... National pride, a lot of patriotism, Sorry, you, know, yeah. you know, like they say, you know, the feathers of Midlovian, you know, yeah, if yeah. the four feathers goes back to that, um, yeah. you know, it's kind of, you didn't do it, you were seen as a coward, you know, you were seen as, you know, doing your bit for king and country as it was then, um, and there was a lot of pressure on people to join up, but at the same time, you know, this, this kind of pressure led to some very, very sad stories. You know, Hearts in particular, I think Hearts is the saddest story, you know, spoken about the letter. Mm. But in November 1914, the entire 16-man squad all joined up. Right. And of that, um, seven were killed. Wow. Um, at the last game they played, they played Celtic, I think it was two weeks before the outbreak of war. And of the 11 that played, um, only two came through the one scathed. Um, and, you know, some other stats, they joined a company called the 16th Royal Scots Battalion, yeah. um, or was known as McRae's Own after the founder and chief recruiter, uh, Sir George McRae. Um, and four of those, that seven, died at the Battle of Somme alone. The, um, there was a player called Tom Gracie. He's the only player out of all seven to actually have a grave as well. Um, yeah. Just really highlights the horror of the war, as it were. And there were two others afterwards who um, were condemned to an early grave because they were injured through the gas attacks. And there was one, a player called Bob Mercer, who actually dropped down dead during a friendly against Selkirk in 1926 because his lungs were so badly destroyed by the, yeah, by the gas. Um, you know, and they felt the pressure to go and do that. This was a very different war, wasn't it? I mean, when, when these boys joined up in 1914, 
we're looking at the posters, um, all referencing clubs and football and sport. Mm. It was seen as something akin to a clash of colours, you know, um, a traditional war perhaps, as, as, as may have been fought back in the 19th century. But this was a very different type of war. This was what they called industrial warfare. It was, it was devoted to the gas, the machine gun, the major artillery. It was, and football was a part of that. Um, Tottenham Hotspur, White Hart Lane, was actually requisitioned by the munitions ministry yeah. to make gas masks in 1915, which is ironic considering the, <laughs> the, 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 sound, the, gas. You, the sound you get um, when we play Tottenham. But they actually <laughs> made gas masks from 1915, and wow. I believe they made around 11 million by the end of the war, um, just from the, the factory that was at White Hart Lane. Yeah. So, you know, there was other things, you know, um, pitches were turned into training grounds, things like that. Um, but to, I mean, what people don't understand was, you know, people back home felt that, you know, they were just going off to war and everything was normal. And yeah. Hearts actually sent out a parcel to their battalion um, of players, and it contained 240 pairs of socks, 5,000 cigarettes, 20 cases of soap, 100 boxes of Edinburgh Rock, 14 <laughs> pairs of football boots, three balls, and a pump. <laughs> Whether they used that, I don't know, but something tells me I don't think they did actually. I would imagine the Edinburgh Rock they would have thrown at the Germans to cause more damage, perhaps, than some of them. Yeah, the fans probably, done. you know, threw it the linesman <laughs> when they were 5 1 up against Shrewsbury Town. The war began with movement and then rapidly descended into trench warfare, as we've said, governed by barbed wire based machine gun attacks, gas attacks, and rapidly became a, a mincing machine effectively for. For human beings on both sides. The numbers are incredible uh, when you look at them. Yeah, yeah um, yes and no. Um, the, the, the First World War, it, it suffers from comparison with the Second World War um, until recently. Now it's seen as this kind of romantic adventure. You know, if you ask anyone about the First World War, they would talk about the trenches, they'll talk about football games, and they'll talk about the poetry. Yeah. Um, a lot of it was actually like that. I mean, obviously, you had the Gallipoli campaign, you had the wars, the fights in the desert, you know, you had Lawrence of Arabia, etc. Yes, yes. Um, and even in the trenches, you know, you, you get these people that romanticise it about, you know, they're living in, you know, squalor, mm. you know, they're living mm. with rats. And, you mm. know, the difference was most of these were working class lads mm. back home. They, they lived in squalor, <laughs> they lived with rats, you know, there wasn't that much of a difference. The only difference was they're being shot at, um, <laughs> and some of them were still being shot at, you know. Um, so there was this kind of really romantic element about it, but it was a different kind of war to what was fought before because people went in the trenches, and yeah. it was a stalemate, you know, there was people trying to use cavalry, anyone that's seen Warhorse, the beginning of that is very accurate, you know, they put these horses into battle straight away and they mm. got mowed down by machine yeah, guns. Yeah, and it yeah. wasn't until tanks came along that you had a kind of um, movement on yeah. the ground, you know, even up in the air. I mean, everyone sees, you know, the airplanes and Baron von Richthofen, but in the yeah. early parts of the war, these planes weren't even fitted with machine guns. And there was one enterprising German who used to fly up with a load of bricks and used to drop them on his, um, <laughs> on the enemy from above. And, you know, it was that kind of war at the time. But it was a different war. Obviously, you had the Zeppelin uh, that would come in, and um, John Le Measurer, for example, yeah. he fondly remembers, or he did fondly remember, he's dead, of course, um, Zeppelin's flying over London when he was free. It was one of his earliest memories. And Hartlepool United, or Hartlepools as they were back then, yeah. were actually bombed by Zeppelin during the war and tried to claim compensation for the German government afterwards to the tune of £2,500 for damages. <laughs> they never got anywhere, but I think Hitler remembered it because they bombed him when they, during the Second World War, so they clearly went back to have a second go, finish him off. But um, perhaps it was for the monkey. Perhaps the monkey was German. You never know. <laughs> 
Achtung, Mehlball. So the course of the war began with what you might call amateur enthusiasm, a volunteer army, an increasing need for volunteers as, as casualties became ever higher at the front in, the, in France and Belgium. Um, building towards the, uh, I suppose, the, the moment of truth, which would be the Battle of the Somme in 1916, the 100th anniversary, which is, is next year. Yeah. Um, an awful event, I think, in our national history. Um, when you look at the war memorials across the country, you just see the, the, the figures for that, that first day of the Somme. It was, I can't remember how many thousands of dead, 6,000, 5,000 dead on the opening day. 20,000. 60,000 casualties. Worst ever yeah. um, day for the British Army. In one day. And the numbers just almost um, almost overwhelm you a little bit, don't they? They become too much to, to consider. Kind of. Um, having studied the event um, in great detail, that a lot of it was down to not ignorance as such. You know, the, you know you've got to remember... Again, the comparisons with the Second World War, this is the first time they've done things like heavy bombardment, you mm. know, the massive explosion people see. They really did think that the Germans would be wiped out. Not everyone actually walked over, which is become a myth. A few people walked over, but those that had a bit of nouse about them, they run. They run, yeah. They took their... I would have run. I, I would have run the other way, to be honest. Um, you know, like I say, I, I'm a hero at heart, but my leg's a coward. Um, but... Um, it was a very interesting battle, and it lasted months. You know, it didn't last one day; it lasted months. And there were gains made, there were losses made, etc. It was a very long battle. But again, football played a part in the battle. Mm. Um, you know, to give you some idea, the only ever uh, Victoria Cross won by a professional footballer was one during the Battle of the Somme. It was a second lieutenant, Donald Bell, and he received it for charging a machine gun nest armed only with a revolver and some hand grenades. Wow. Um, and he played for Bradford Park Avenue, if you remember them, went yeah. out of business in 1917. And the PFA actually paid, paid for a, a permanent memorial to him in France. But there's another interesting story. Um, some people may have come across this. The 8th Battalion, the Surrey Regiment, attacked the Prussian Guards on the first day of the Somme. And their captain, W.P. Neville, produced four footballs. And they dribbled them across the battlefield, as the joke goes, before tackling the enemy. <laughs> as um, one would. <laughs> Neville was actually killed in the skirmish. Um, but one of the balls was sent back to the battalion. is on permanent display as a memorial. But um, there, there was a lot of very, very... Brave men who fought in the battle. These are incredible feats of madness, bravery. What, what do you want to call that? It's it, it veers between the two, doesn't it? Well, a lot Bravado, of them, I don't know what you would call that. There is. I mean, there's there's two other players. One. Apologies to your listeners, was a goalkeeper. Um, <laughs> Lee Richmond Bruce, very famous goalkeeper actually, who won 24 caps for Wales. To give you some idea, he died in October at the Battle of the Somme. That's how long it lasted. Mm. You know, he got the military medal um, yeah. after he was killed. And there was another chap by the um, Third Lanark player, Scotland, by John Ferguson, who was recommended for a VC. Nothing ever came of it, but apparently he took out four machine gun nests and cleared a 20 metre or 200 metre long trench by himself wow. and um, never got anything. So, you know, it's, there's loads of acts of bravery, and a lot of them happened, you know, during that kind of battle, which kind of defies the argument that it was stalemate all along. There was movement, there were battles in this war. Um, but the, the problem was, like you saw with Hearts um, and the Powers Battalions, uh, what people may not realise, that, you know, entire streets would join up together. Yeah, and villages someone, would join, wouldn't they? Someone Plus. thought it was a good idea to put all these people in the same battalion yeah. so they could be with their mates and, you know, have a good time and, you know, be there for their mates, etc., of course, they're all in the same spot when the machine guns open, they and entire streets, together, entire streets lost, you know, their male population overnight. But 
if you there was um, whopping actually produced a little book after the First World War commemorating all their dead yeah. and he did it by streets and you go through it it's just lists of deceased 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 very few people survive from whopping or the blocks and because they're on the same concentrated area of fire which is a mistake they didn't repeat um, in the Second World War but you know it was a it was a heavy mistake to learn about but, you know putting people together I meant entire families were yeah. wiped out in a day it seems trite to mention football in the face of events like that but and, and the last season of professional football was 1914-15 <laughs> after which I think the FA decided that professional football really couldn't be sustained in, in the face of what was um, rapidly becoming a long war I think there was the hope it would be over by Christmas famously it never was over by that Christmas and in the face of the losses and, and the, the national effort that's going to be required building up to initially the sum professional football ceased and, it, and we reverted to a kind of a a regional style competition um, involving London clubs, I believe, in, in Millwall's case. Uh, yeah, a lot of it. It was all regional. Uh, there was no midweek games. No. Um, you know, when the Zeppelins were flying over, similar to the Second World War, yeah. crowds couldn't congregate together. Travel was difficult. I guess it was. Pictures was it was. You yeah. know, there's, there's a lot of comic tales in the Second World War about travel. You know, people going miles to get to games only to find it's been called off, etc. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to note with uh, German. Germany in the time their mm. football came to a complete halt there was no football during the First World War um, and some teams like Karlsruhe struggled to put out a team for three years others mm. merged to try and get teams out but following the British naval blockade of Germany uh, Kaiser Wilhelm issued an edict basically that all open space was to be used for growing vegetables to feed the population of people starving right. so their football pitches became cabbage patches cabbage and patches, potato yeah. fields allotments I guess yeah. wow Again, you've got the anecdotes that in Germany, you know, former England international Steve Bloomer, who, funny enough, also won a baseball medal, I believe. A baseball medal? He played for Derby County. And they used to have baseball ground. Baseball ground, that's where it came from. He left left to Berlin in July 1914 to um, coach the Britannia Club for the 1916 Olympics. Right. And he was interred straight away when war was declared with um, Notts County's John Bearley and uh, Blackburn Rovers Fred Pentland I believe it was and um, they were taken to this internment camp and they set up their own football league and they had a whole season 1915-1916 and Bloomer's team won every single game <laughs> yeah, football continued in the internment camps things like that but you know, German football compared to the Second World War just died um, the same with Russia as well Russia had a budding football league at the time mm. and that stopped and I think the only place that football really continued was the United States of America, <laughs> believe it or not. There is a, a, a formal war memorial at the ground. Four mill players died in the course of the conflicts. I'll read their names. J. Dines, C. Green, G. Porter and J. Williams, who uh, completed a couple of Southern League appearances for the club. And it is listed on, on the Lewisham website as a formal war memorial for the borough. Um, I'm trying to think where it's located, actually. It must be under the West Stand, I would think. I can't remember what it might be in the club offices. I don't know. But it's it's certainly there to be seen if you choose to. I mean, there was talk when... um Years ago, when Theo Pafitis was in charge and he used to visit Hoff, mm. you know, there was talk about naming the stands. And, you know, I said, well, who would we name them after? And someone did say, well, name after the First World War dead. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a very good argument. But then there was other uh, members of the club that fought. There was one who was in the um, Royal Ambulance Corps, uh, what was it, the RAMC, 
or rob all my comrades, as they're called. <laughs> um, but he actually won the military medal for bravery as well after he, um, he stepped on a hand grenade to protect his colleagues, blew his foot off. But right. um, he was able to turn as a physio, I believe, or a right. trainer, something like that. Wow. Um, a couple of Millwall um, players I just want to mention while we're on the, on the First World War. Uh, Bill Voicey, who um, was a player pre-World uh, War One, when the club was actually quite a large presence in football mm. in the Southern League, uh, we entered the conflict as quite a major force and obviously the impact of war meant that slightly went out the, uh, out the window slightly over the course of the war. But Voicey um, was a, one of our players who went to France, rose through the ranks and returned a hero. Indeed, he's mentioned in, in the book here as having um, been awarded a medal for bravery under heavy fire in March 1918, which would have been the German offensive that, uh, in the closing uh, months of, of, of the war. He was awarded the military medal and the Croix de Guerre from France, so you, mm. you don't get that for, for nothing. Conflicts thankfully closed November 1918. Yep. Um, and as it says here, the strain of horror, the brutal four years of brutal warfare was reflected in the need for escapism. People flocked back to football grounds after the war, although there was apparently quite a tattered air and quite a tattered look to some of the clubs. Yeah, there's, um, you know, you, you can see the photos, some people didn't have strips and things like no. that. It was the same after the Second World War as well. What is often overlooked, funny enough, you know, I know we've reached the end of the war and, you know, it's all over. There was actually two football battalions. Everyone remembers or has heard of the, the football the battalion. One. Yeah. yeah, there was actually another one formed in uh, 1915 and they actually went to France and played games behind enemy lines to entertain okay. the troops. And they, in December 1915, show you how good they are, they mm. beat the Royal Engineers, previous cup winners, of course. Of course, yeah. 19-1. 19-1. <laughs> so, uh, bit of a one-sided game, that one. There's a result. Yeah. One last unusual fact um, at the very end of the war, and I'm just reading here that amongst the middle squad, afflicted by war and afflicted by troop movements, we had three Canadian soldiers in our team at the end of, well, at the, uh, the first game of the piece. So. Well, they're throw-ins good, like Adrian Saroos, <laughs> So, and funny enough, um, just to touch on that, you know, there was a lot of football first, you know, the VC, there was the last player killed was um, a footballer as well, the Derby County player, yeah. but the first black officer in the British Army was obviously Walter Toll, which some people may have heard of, he's been in the papers recently, yeah, yeah. one of the first, not the first, no. black professional. Right. He played for Northampton, Rangers, etc. He joined up, enlisted, rose to the rank of second lieutenant, and he died at the second battle of the Somme in March 1918, and he was awarded the military cross as well. So there was a lot of footballers out there who won these medals for their bravery, and yeah. a lot of people said it was because, you know, their actions on the pitch... They brought it the on to a different mentality, yeah, yeah, the team mentality, you yeah. know, for me, comrades, etc. And a lot of them won medals, but a lot of clubs suffered. I mean, Luton Town lost five players. Yeah. You know, we talked about so we talked about Hearts, we were losing four. Everyone lost players during yeah. the First World War, unfortunately. So we'll close it there. The, the First World War ended with Millwall as uh, still a Southern League club, I believe, at that point. And we were to join the, the Football League finally, I think it was 1920. 1921, we became a third member of the third division, um, where prior to the First World War, um, we were one of the major forces in Southern football. Um, so as ever, if you study any mill history, you'll see huge amounts of promise, cataclysmic events, and then we're left clinging on for dear life afterwards. And so it was at the end of World War I. Um, just one last poignant piece, I'm just looking at the, uh, the James Murray book. And just to put it all in perspective, there's a, a, a piece from a programme at the end of the war, a benefit match for the widow and child of late Jack Williams, one of the middle players who was killed at the front. 
uh, a local derby against Crystal Palace, 3.30 p.m. kickoff, Saturday, May the 5th. Um, there was a National Royal Football Fund uh, established in 1917 to kind of um, support yeah. people, you know, their families, bereaved. We've had to stretch a long way, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, etc., yeah. But I think God, they, they used to play games to raise money, etc. Yeah. You used to get a lot of that. Um, same with the Boer War, funny enough, yeah. which we we spoke about because the yeah. first ever professional footballer, as it was, died during the Boer War. 19, 1899? Gilbert Goldsmark, who played for Newton Heath, who became Man United. Sure. He had signed for them, played nine games, and was killed in action the following February. And to give you some idea of where Newton Heath was going, they disputed the transfer fee with the club, saying, well, he didn't fulfil his potential. <laughs> Go figure, <laughs> you know. Achtung, Mehlball. All right, welcome back after the break. Um, so we've done the First World War, as far as you can ever say such a simple throwaway thing about an event of that, of that um, stature. Uh, and now we're going to look at the impact of war on football and Millwall of the Second World War. Um, and just to give us a little bit of perspective, obviously the Second World War began in 1939 after a steadily worsening situation in, in Central Europe, the rise of a certain German gentleman called Adolf Hitler being... Uh, it's Austrian. It's Austrian. Um, a certain Austrian gentleman by the name of Adolf Hitler and, he, and his incessant demands on, on, on territory. Um, at the same time, just, as, just to make a, a slightly odd contrast, Millwall at the time of the outbreak of the Second World, World, World War they were actually reasonably well placed. And we're even talking about a drive to the top flight, first division football. Very good. I mean, older listeners will remember, obviously, the, um, the run to the FA Cup semi-final, yeah. where they beat Chelsea, Derby and Man City on the way. You know, yeah. Never ever mentioned in these FA Cup moments of giant killing, obviously. No. Um, got promoted. It was... You know, really going places. You know, one of the best supported clubs in London as well. And, Invested um, in the stadium. I think yeah. they built um, what, what I remember as the old seats. You'll remember it too, but that was a, a much, much larger yeah. stand. The Hold clock went up. You the know, there, there was a lot of investment and um, the club was going places. It was gearing up for first division was, football. And then, lo and behold, um, Hitler invades Poland. Yeah. And we went into Europe. <laughs> And we got into Europe yeah. by a different method. By the back door, yeah. By the back yeah. door. Um, the First World War begat the Second World War. I think that's probably a very simple way to put it, but the, um, the after effects of um, the peace that was imposed on Germany led to the rise of Nazism, fascism in Europe, and brought us to the point where war broke out in 1939. Um, I, think, I think it's fair to say that as, for an, as an impact on a Millwall football club, the Second World War was was a true catastrophe in, in where it, we started and where we finished. Yeah, it, it was probably the worst thing ever to happen to the club, if, yeah. if I'm honest. Um, it probably destroyed all momentum. Didn't get that momentum back for years. You know, came back and you know quickly returned to the third division south. Um, just back nearly ten years afterwards, you know, back in what was then Division Four, and you know, the newly formed Division Four, and you know, it was going nowhere fast. It's unfortunate those things happen, you know, yeah. where for the grace of God we would have been, you know, we had a couple of England internationals in the side, um, in J.R. Smith, the last player to play for Millwall for England, um, you know, we, we were going places. Unfortunately, you know, war comes along and it, it takes all that away, you know, it wasn't only for Millwall, obviously, many clubs are affected once again. Footballers 
got a better time of it if we're honest in the whole you know yeah. on the whole they got a better time of it because they were you know employed as PT instructors but you know some people still had a go at them you know we talked about the white feathers before yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of carried on and you know they, they used to have they tried to continue with the football they recognised the benefits of morale and, between them, yeah, yeah. entertainment and you know keeping the spirits up but you know even when people you know you have people like Stanley Matthews who are playing um one-off games to try and raise money and as they walk past people would shout you know D-Day Dodgers or PT Commandos at them you know and it, it took you know contributed effort in the war but you know not every footballer you know ended up as a PT instructor no. you know most of them you know actually did some kind of service during the war if not all of them you know yeah. it wasn't like these actors in Hollywood you know David Niven famously joined the Air Force um, John Wayne whether you believe him or not wasn't allowed to join the army but never saw conflict but you know a lot of these players okay so some of them didn't join the army some worked down the pit some become military yeah. policemen some you know ARP etc you know they all put the effort in they all you know, yeah, for the calls, but you know, we'll, we'll probably get on the tap later. But you know, people like Lynn Shackleton, he was he tried to join up, but he was in a reserved occupation because he was making radios at the time, and right. obviously, radios for Spitfires and all your, your bombers were critical, critical. so he yeah. wasn't allowed to join up. Um, yeah. you know, but he was in a reserved occupation. But there was another one, just to mention another goalkeeper, Chesterfield's Ray Middleton went down the mines because the mines, you know, miners essential, essential. Work, totally. But um, he decided to insure his hands for two thousand pounds. Just in case anything went wrong. <laughs> We've mentioned the First World War. That was very much um, the first modern war. Um, it happened over there in France. It didn't really touch the home front to any great extent. A few air raids mm -hmm. and a few, um, obviously, apart from the huge losses of men and material. But the Second World War was a total contrast in that there was an expectation that bombing would um, would be you know a, a tactic used very early on, and mm -hmm. so it turned out to be in, in what we know as the Blitzkrieg of. 1940, when Bermondsey and New Cross, Dockland areas took an absolute pounding. They did. There, there's, um, you know, they decided to keep it going. You know, there was touring football sides to keep morale up. They stopped the league, so Portsmouth held on to the cup for years, which they're, they're very fond of telling everyone. But they decided to create these kind of wartime leagues, the yeah. wartime cup finals, obviously, that, you know, people remember the 1945 one when we yeah. played yeah. Chelsea. Chelsea yeah. Although we're four guest players, and Chelsea had seven guest players or something like that, and both of them shared the 12th man, you know. But that happened, people had guest players. Um, you know, just touching on that, there's a great anecdote up in Scotland. Uh, I think it was Airdrie got to a semi-final, and they drafted in Stanley Matthews, so they were playing Dundee. And because they drafted in Stanley Matthews, everyone saw this as cheating and started tuning on Dundee. And Dundee won 3 1. But um, give you some idea September 7th, 1940, first game of the season, uh, air raid side and sounded at the valley with one minute left to play. Chung were losing 4 2 to Millwall. Well, There's nothing new there. Nothing new there, let's be honest. They'll do anything to try and end the game, won't they? Um, but such was the bombardment. The shrapnel started to fall on the ground and on the pitch. And so the teams were taken off. Whiskey was taken from the boardroom to try and fortify fainting women in the crowd. Of course. And when the all-clear stand, the teams returned to complete the last 60 seconds of the game. <laughs> Unfortunately, they couldn't convince the fans to return for the last 60 seconds of the game. They played it out in front of an empty Valley Stadium. But they did. But it was a common thing that, you know, that 
people would play on. Um, mm. There's a very funny story in Malta. You know, the soldiers would play football when they were off duty, yeah. even if there was um, an air raid going on. And, you know, there's reports of shrapnel hitting the roofs and things like that, but they didn't care. You know, they, they just wanted to play football. They didn't care. Well, they, who knows? Well, it, it, it's, it's a different generation, and we live in a health and safety conscious world now, and these, these stories are amazing, aren't they? They are. I mean, everyone knows about Christmas Day, the truce, people yeah. play football. What is less known is D-Day, following D-Day, all the landing crafts, all the ships, all yeah. the crews, board, challenged each other to games of football on the beaches. On the beaches. <laughs> on the beaches. <laughs> Don't know what they used for goals, but they challenged each other on the beaches, and they used to play football. Hollywood missed that up saving private Ryan, didn't they? They did, they did, although um, everyone remembers Escape to Victory, but, you know, it's actually based on true stories. These... POWs used yeah. to actually play, you know, form leagues yeah. and have internationals like Michael Caine says in the film where yeah. they used to play for each other. And there was one prison camp in Germany had so many um, ex-footballers that they could name a League 11 within the prison of war camp. <laughs> Early stages of war, football was um, converted to regionalism, as, as you said. There's also restrictions on crowd numbers allowed in stadiums in the, in the early parts of the war. There was, um, there were, and um, a lot of teams couldn't, couldn't play at all so they no. couldn't compete um, for example Exeter City's ground was handed over to the US Army they used it as a training yes, ground so they couldn't use it um, there were some others uh, Swindon Town became a prisoner of war camp yeah. so they couldn't actually compete um, but there was actually you know you talk about travel and the numbers in 1941 the league actually expelled 14 clubs including Millwall so it was all the London clubs uh, plus Reading and Crew believe it or not and they were joined by Watford, Portsmouth and Brighton. And basically, they, um, they were basically in these fixtures. Mm. They had to travel miles, seaside resorts, etc. And they didn't want to go because there was no guarantee that they get, get there, yeah. B, get back, or C, get bombed. Yeah. And crew yeah. were the same. They were put into a southern section despite being up near Manchester. And they didn't want to travel. And so the league decided to expel them. They right. were going to get rid of all the clubs. They appealed. It was all dusted under the carpet and that therefore well, that's why you got the London League that year because yeah. they were allowed to play each other but you know they were still trying to enforce their authority on these clubs despite the fact there was a war going on and they had to travel all these miles to play games it was stupid Achtung Milbein There was a, um, a dispute I read about in the in the um in the James Murray book we uh, at the time of the outbreak of war Mill had a, a highly um, controversial uh, personality manager, uh, not Ian Holloway, but uh, a guy called Charles Hewitt, mm -hmm. um, a, a big figure in, in the club's history. He was, he was twice manager of Millwall, but um, I, I think the kind of man of, almost deserves a show in his own right. Maybe we'll do that another time because he's a very interesting character. But he was he was Mr Millwall, Mr Personality, and he led the club from um, you know um, to some success prior to the war, and then it broke out. And um, he, during the course of the Battle of Britain, Mill managed to sack their manager <laughs> for financial irregularities. I don't know if it was quite bung material, but it was, it was a dispute over 10 shillings. Yeah, yeah. They should have done that to Holloway. <laughs> Battle of Britain's on telly, you're fired. Only Millwall can sack a manager in the throat of a battle for national survival, Neil. Yeah, but it's kind of, it's business as usual. That's the way you've got to look at it. It really was business as usual. You know, the problem was, like we were saying with the guest players and your Stanley Matthews, that 
if you want these people to play for you, you maybe would have given them a bung or something. But yeah. I think his actual financial irregularities went back to before the Battle of Britain, you know, was uncovered then. Um, anyone that's ever read um, Inside the Lines then, or yeah. In and Out the Lines, the yeah, yeah. John Shepard's book, yeah. you know, these players in the 50s, they were no different. He was selling his tickets on Cup Final Day, yeah. there's hints yeah. of match fixing even then, yeah. which they don't really there do. There is nothing into. new. I think that's the yeah. interesting part. I mean, what we have now is a world of technology but there's nothing new in terms of human behaviour and if people could fix a match and get a, get a yeah. bet on it possibly who wouldn't, who wouldn't? Yeah. <laughs> anyway back to the war mm. <laughs> now the, the the cataclysmic event from Millwall's point of view came in the um, early hours of 1943 April the 14th when a Luftwaffe raid I think this was what they called a, a mini blitz the, the blitz finished in 41 mm. and the Luftwaffe were uh, trying to mount an air offensive and a lone raider, as it's put in in in, uh, in in lines of the south, dropped a bomb which hit the hit the den in the corner by the old Ilderton Road clock end. I believe it was an hour after a game had just finished yeah. as well. So you know it could have been a lot worse. But considering the location to the docks, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, you it'd know, been untouched until that. Yeah, there was, there was a few grounds that bombed several times. You know, and at Sunderland, they were bombed and the policeman died there. Yeah. Um, but you know. The, the grounds were always used, you know, always, that was always the danger. They could be bombed and, you know, everyone got bombed pretty much in the Second yeah. World War. And, you know, I, I believe he went to play with Charlton for a while and, you know, while they had to clear the mess up. But, you know, it, it was it was one of those things, you know, you would lose your ground, you know, you could lose your ground, etc. We've the, lost, lost half of our North mm, Terrace there. I'm just looking at the picture here, which you listeners will have to look up on the internet. It's on the Mill History website. It's a fascinating picture. But it's uh, a bomb landed on the, where the clock was. It's on the old um, corner of the North Terrace, and there's a crater from well, looks like from the moon. It's, yeah, it's a massive crater. Yeah, I, the, I think the most interesting one at the lot has to be Birmingham Cities. Mm. Um, their stand burned down. Yeah. Not thanks to the Luftwaffe, but thanks to the. Um, the young guard of all people. Guard set fire to Birmingham's No, not quite. They were trying to put out the fire they had to keep warm, <laughs> and one of them mistook what they thought was a bucket of water for a bucket of paraffin. And away you go, <laughs> basically. So, yeah, they lost an entire stand, um, but quite a few clubs were bombed, and, you know, yeah, it, it led, led to some, some And in competence with, with fire safety, I think, was just probably a feature yeah. of the day. I mean, we, we also lost our stand, not, not from the Luftwaffe, but a week later there was a... Uh, a London Senior Cup final between Tooting and Dulwich Handling mm. where somebody must have discarded a cigarette and our showpiece yeah. wooden stand of the time invested in by the club at great cost for first division football mm. went up in flames so that was more than the, the impact of the bomb mm. that was a true disaster for Millwall Wembley was bombed as well and um they hit the dog kennel next to the dog, the dog track. Obviously, it took them two days to round the dogs up. Apparently, but you know that, that's uh, the comedy of war, as they like to say. But you know, it, it is you know, uh, it'd be very hard to actually find a club that wasn't bombed that no. was on the east coast of England and even Scotland. Here's a little story in the aftermath of the impact on the Den. West Ham, of all people in all the world, offered up some park for Mills use as an alternate stadium. Um, listeners will be pleased to know that we turned them down so we've never actually played at Upton Park as a home ground um, but we did um, take up Charlton's offer of playing at, at the Valley whilst the Den was 
um, put reasonably back into some condition where you could let yeah. people stand on the rubble. Different time, wasn't it? Your Diff- enemy is my enemy, therefore we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> so we finished up playing a, a couple of games at Selhurst Park. Um, and we did play, actually. We played a couple of home games at Upton mm. Park. So there we are. There's a there's, a, there's another um, dent in our, our, our self-image, isn't it? And the club continued... Um, Apparently reasonably financially securely in a strange way because this was amateur football. Yeah. They weren't paying the players, they were guest players. There, there were guest players all over the place. Um, well, they were taking money on the gate, so yeah. money was coming in but not necessarily A lot of it out. was charitable games though, you know, you had um, yeah, the wartime international, you had a lot of service games as well. And there was a, a civil defence 11, beat a team from the French Free Forces, 17-3 at the den in April 1941. So it wasn't just Millwall playing, you know, they used yeah. the ground for other things as well. But there was a funny um, anecdote about Fulham fielding a player on the team sheet called S-O-Else. And when it transpired, it was someone else because they didn't know who was playing. But um, I think it was Swindon Town came to play Millwall. And their manager spent the entire morning going around the docks trying to find this player they'd enlisted. Right. And in the end, he gave up and said, look, this isn't my job. And when they got to the ground, the player had been waiting for them for that two hours while he'd been going around the docks looking for him. <laughs> The area took a pounding. Um, if you go on, there's a, there's a fantastic website which um, details the landing sites of all the bombs in London, actually. And when you, when you stop and look at that, it's quite an incredible site. The dots are crowded, to say the least, in the, in the New Cross mm. area. Um, it, it's, it's well worth checking out if any listeners want to have a look on there. Bomb, bomb sites in London, something like that. You can find it on Google. Well worth a look. Achtung. We talk about the league and everyone remembers the World Time Cup finals. You've got, you know, like the London League, which Millwall played in. Um, But what most people don't realise, that the the German Championship actually ran until 1944, all the way up to the... Did it? The actual professional league... um, and regional football continued until the bitter end, with Hamburg actually playing the last official recognised Nazi Germany football game the day before Hitler shot himself. So, you know, the, the <laughs> Germans... <laughs> Hitler, you know, he recognised the value, and they kept playing, but it threw up loads of different things, you know. Rapid Vienna, because of the Anschluss, was yeah. playing in the German league. Yeah, so, you know, they yeah. become one of the few teams to win the title in two different countries when they beat Schalke 4-3 in 1941. Um, and there's a, kind of an aftermath to that story. The, the Schalke centre forward, a guy called Adolf Urban, believed his side had been robbed in the final and vowed to win the title back from the following season. Now, normally you'd take that with a pinch of salt yeah, there, yeah. centre forward, except that he was in a trench on the Eastern Front, listening to it on the radio, <laughs> because the players would go and serve and come back and play for a season. And he did actually, true to his word, came back the following year played in the title game they played Rapid Vienna again and they won 2-0 right. and they went on to actually lose to 1860 Munich four months later in the cup final that was his last game he went back to the Eastern Front um, fought in Stalingrad was never seen her again perished one yeah. I imagine yeah. but he had um, the early rounds they were farcical you know in, uh, I think it was 1943 actually Nuremberg won a game 20 goals to 1 you know it was that kind of regional football yeah, league and then yeah. you built up but the Bundesliga didn't exist until 1965 no, anyway no. as some people know but you know Germany just carried on playing football as did the Italians but the Italians only did it because Mussolini insisted because the Germans were doing it but they carried on till uh, I think it was 1943 after the invasion uh, Torino won the last one such was this demand for football that Italy were playing against a Croatian side in 1942 some um, Yugoslav patriots stormed the stadium 
kill six of the players and the referee. Wow. I don't know whether it was a refereeing decision or not that caused the outcry, <laughs> but there you go. Wow. But, you know... Um, escapism. Because, People need escapism at times, um, of, times of, of, of stress, don't they? It, but, you know, they were playing internationals as well. You know, Germany um, travelled to Switzerland. They played Hungary. Spain travelled through occupied territory to play Germany in an international. They're all recognised by FIFA and they carried on playing. And Germany were quite a force to be reckoned with because, you know, they... Basically, they acquired all these players when they took countries over. They did not take other people's players over, didn't they? Well, the last two Jewish players was a guy called Julian Hirsch and another called Gerard Fuchs, or Uwe Fuchs, as we were calling him from there on. Last two players, Hirsch was arrested and died in Auschwitz, and um, Fuchs escaped to Canada. There is another interesting thing, without wishing to boring listeners everywhere. In 1942, when Germany sent a team to Switzerland, won uh, 5-3, front of a crowd of 34,000. Right. Their centre forward was Ernst Wilnowski. Okay. scored four goals. I had to be pleased with that, but he was Poland's leading goal scorer in the 1938 World Cup. There's so, nothing you know, new there. There's nothing so new. If, England, side of if England want to win the next World Cup, basically they've got to invade Italy, Germany and Spain and take it from there. <laughs> but, you know, there was a lot of internationals. I mean, there was the wartime internationals. Italy managed eight. Holland played Belgium at Walthamstow, 1941. Um, it was basically... Um, Expatriate, um, Expatriates army there was I think it was the Dutch left back couldn't speak a word of Dutch because he lived in um, the UK for 20 years but it's that kind of um, <laughs> mentality that kept people going uh, Allied armies versus Navy games um, there was the RAF uh, versus the, the boxing, uh, boxing RAF versus army boxing day game uh, there was a good one that saw um, Stanley Matthews and his teammate, a bloke called Dodds, they missed their train. We were talking about the travel before. Yeah, indeed, yeah. They managed to get to the ground after jumping the queue by turning up at the station and shouting, we're footballers, we've got to be at the game. <laughs> they reached the game just as people were singing the national anthem. So, you know, there was a hell of a lot of stories like that. Achtung, Milbein. The com- conflict closed, for, well, closed in May... Uh, 1945 in Europe, certainly. Um, not a month after Mill's one and only cup final to that date at Wembley. Yeah. Uh, the Football League South Cup final, as it's, as it's called here, War Cup final, as we tend to call it now, between Chelsea and Mill Athletic, as it's built on, on the programme here. Um, it was a mix and match kind of affair, really, wasn't it? 90,000 crowd, though, watching two teams that were, you know, guest players and were The crowds much... were always big. Throughout the war, you know, although they had this thing about, you know, um, not having so many people there, you know, these crowds and people pushing, etc. I mean, the the, what they called the victory internationals after the war, when England played Scotland at Hampden Park, they expected 75,000 and over 100,000 people turned up for the game. Um, you know, we were talking about supplies at the end of the First World War. Um, supplies were so short at the end of the Second World War that Scotland actually had no kit. And Tommy Walker, pre-war international, you know, he played for Chelsea, etc., yeah. actually got all his collection of old tops and they ran out in Tommy Walker's kit, basically, because they didn't have anything else. And Millwall were the same. You know, you look at some of the photos after the war and they've all got different Millwall tops on. You know, yeah. it was a real... It was harsh. Exactly. I mean, there, there was Very no closing. Harsh. I'm just looking at the Millwall lineup at the War Cup final, 1945. Uh, goalkeeper Bartram of Charlton, um, Dudley Fisher, Ludford Smith, Tyler Rawlings, Brown of Charlton, uh, Jinx, Brown Tim, Williams of Aberdeen. Uh, so that was the Millwall lineup, and then the Chelsea lineup, um, if you can call it that, consisted of uh, Black of Aberdeen, Winter of Bolton, Hardwick of Middlesbrough, Russell, must have been a Chelsea player, Harris of Wolves, Foss Wardle of Exeter, uh, Smith L of Brentford, Payne, Chelsea. 
Gordon, West Ham and McDonald, Bournemouth. So that's practically a whole side of guest yeah. players. And uh, it was a Scott, Willie Hull, who was named as 12th man for both sides. He yeah. didn't play for either of them. But, um, you know, football carried on during the war. But it's worth noting that footballs became very sparse after the fall of Singapore in 1942 because yeah. that's where they got all the rubber from to make the balls so, <laughs> and things like that but you know there, there was actually two touring sides uh, designed to keep up morale who toured you know the forces um, one was Dennis Compton's side yeah. um, there was another one uh, led by Tommy Walker in the Far East as well and they would play all these games you know in Ceylon India I think it was Dennis Compton I think I've got here they played 13 games in 23 days during a tour of Palestine um, 33 times in the tropical heat of India Ceylon and Burma Made and they were undefe- there, undefeated 50 games but you know Dennis Compton's effort to the war effort was entertaining yeah. the troops playing football um, I know we talked about the medals won and there was a lot of medals won there's yeah. you know, a lot of very brave uh, footballers that, that played in the second world war but because there were so many given out, they kind of lost. I mean, 75 British footballers died during World War Two. You know, lots of them fought. Mm. You know, Stan Mortensen almost strangled himself from his parachute in 1914. Um, you know, you've, you've got Spurs' Freddie Cox was a fighter pilot. They, they all played their part in the yeah. war. But because they didn't all join up together, you didn't get the horrors like with Hearts all dying together. No. It kind of, it, it, I don't want to say lessons their contribution that's the wrong word mm. but it's underappreciated I think would be a better way of describing yeah, it no, the, no, the, no. The, the players put in you know yes some of these were PT instructors but they were considered the fittest men in the country so you know they were designed to make the soldiers fit so they could fight day after day after day you know they all put the effort in but it's kind of looked down upon these days you know I think the second world war conversely is having the um, going through the same kind of process that the First World War went when you had all these Clint Eastwood films and all these, you know, the Dirty Dozen mm. and, you know, Kelly's Heroes. And yeah. You never got films like that and now you're getting all these dramas about First World War and the horrors of the trenches and all this. You rarely see anything about the Second World War these days. No. Um, and the thing is, you know, maybe people got tired of it, I don't know, or, you know, perhaps people love the romance of the First World War, but... Second one's got some fascinating related stories, you know, really fascinating. It's just a shame people don't realise what's going on or what happened out there. Well, I think one thing we can say at the den is that the memory of and the acknowledgement of the sacrifices made by all of our players, and in fairness, the whole nation um, is respected very, very well. Um, I, I, I personally think that it's, 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 it's to our credit that we... We acknowledge it in the way that we do because it's not like war is over, is it? I mean, there have been you know sacrifices since. We're talking about now the the Northern Irish conflict. We're talking about the um, the Falkland War. We're talking about the Middle Eastern wars mm. that we've got going on now. We've still got Millwall fans, yeah, and soldiers across the country yeah. giving their lives. Achtung, Millwall. Of course, you had the soccer war of 1969. Honduras. I don't think we could go for an entire program about the war without talking about FC Star of Kiev. And, you know, okay, well, uh, there, um, you, you've sure bounced you, me now, Neil. Come on. You must have heard of this one. It's kind of what Escape to Victory was based on. It was um, people often confuse it with Kiev. It was mainly Kiev players, but also sorry, not Kiev, Dynamo Kiev players, but it was also locomotive Kiev players. Right. They, when the war started, they were basically sent to work in this bakery. And when the Germans took over Kiev, they were also like working in this bakery. The Germans love football, 
furious things got out of football. They formed this league in Kiev, Warsaw okay. Kiev. And to show there was no, um, you know, it's them. No hard yeah, kind of, <laughs> They invited this team along and they called themselves FC Starts. And then it was, you know, all professionals. Yeah. And they were playing, um, so they played the Wehrmachts, they played the Luftwaffe teams, <laughs> they played um, a Romanian uh, team, because people don't realise the Romanians fought in Russia on the side of the Germans, a few others, local militia, etc. Basically, yeah. they won every game. Okay. And uh, naturally, the Germans got pissed off with this. <laughs> And they basically said to him, you know, that's the last game, you're playing the SS, you know, the crack German, <laughs> German army the SS Not only that, the referee was an SS thing. The Gestapo referee, or what? They not only won the game, such was the, the not even arrogance, you know, such was this thing that we're not going to be put down by you. One of their players actually dribbled around the entire team, went past the goalkeeper, and in front of an empty net, stood on the ball. And then when they came to tackle him, he got the ball and dribbled them all round him again and then scored. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. The 11 players were marched off. Uh, one was tortured and killed there and then taken off to a camp. Four um, died with a kit on. Um, they were shot. Um, the, the others were survived because the Russians made advances and basically captured the camp where they were. Um, but they've been remembered in Kiev to this day. Statues everywhere. Um, if you ever get a chance, there's a book called Dynamo. Very interesting book. Details all the games, all the anecdotes you would ever need to know about this incident. But it, it was kind of what Escape to Victory was. But it was actually you know, based on real life events. Based on real life events, and you know, the, this team weren't going to take any shit. Sorry for swearing. From um, mm-hmm. weren't to take any shit from the Germans, and you know, refused to lie down and surrender or give the game up. And you know, not, not only gave them a good game, but basically took the piss out of them as well. And considering the referee was an SS. <laughs> Officer, how the hell are they going? You know, the goals were ruled offside. I don't know, but I suppose if you go around the entire side, it's very hard to kind of chalk a goal off, isn't it? They lacked sense of humour, the SS, when it came to things like that. Yeah, brave men, brave yeah. men. Um, we're going to close out. Um, we'll bring it back to the den at the end of 1945. Our club was shattered by by the Second World War. Um, we entered it, as we've said, in, 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 with high hopes, and we came out of it as a, uh, a bombed-out wreck, um, which went on to struggle through the 1950s. Mm. And as James Murray puts it, uh, uh, we, we never truly recovered. We, we became the small club that we are now. Became a very small club because all the fans were bombed out, so they all moved out, yeah. didn't they, to these new conurbations? The docks died in due course. The docks died... Um, Let's not forget, there was no real money in football. Um, you know, John Shepard's book, he would, you know, he got paid when he played. If he wasn't playing, he wasn't getting paid. So, you know, he had to earn money where he could. So, yeah. You know, he used to do odd jobs here and there, especially in summer, like most people. Um, you know, some of the players were electricians. They'll do jobs around the ground. You know, some of them coming... I mean, one of the anecdotes I always love, you know, you, you say love, but it's quite an interesting anecdote, is that... You know, during the off-season, some of these players would earn money by fixing the ground up. You know, all the repairs yeah. to the ground they do during the summer, the players would get paid world, for it. Yeah. Completely different world. But, you know, but for their efforts and, the, you know, the effort they put in and the fact they kept the club going, it's why we're here today. And, you know, it's like many clubs and many teams have their downsides. You know, they yeah. get beaten 10 nil every week. But the point is that if you get beat 10 nil every week, it doesn't matter. If you're able to put 11 men out and keep the club going... Yeah. That's a far greater result than you know losing game. No one will remember fifty years time. 
Um, totally. I mean, we are with the, the, the people that got us through both world wars. Both were, you know, um, disastrous in their different ways on, on, on the nation, but also on Millwall Football Club. So we owe them a debt to say that our club still exists, and then that in itself is a, is a semi-miracle when you when you read it, it's true. We do, it is, it is a kind of semi-miracle. And it's not only that, I mean, you look at the 1950s, so not even during the war, you look at the, the immediate post-war period, how many clubs are not around anymore? You yeah. know, you, you, your Bradford Park Avenue went out in 1970. Same reasons, you know, basically the war. Gateshead went out. Um, you know, Wokington Barrow, they're not around. You know, and these, these were clubs, you know, Obviously, the most famous one, Atkinson Stanley. These were clubs that could survive, and then the war came along, and basically they were poor. You know, um, the, re- the record attendance, lowest attendance, I think, is 13. Stockport versus someone's paid at Old Trafford because Stockport's ground was bombed. You know, it's kind of it had a long-lasting effect and had a knock-on effect that lasted for many years. It's just interesting. Again, you know, we're referring to photos, but I'm not going to make any apologies to this. I'm, you'll have to find these pictures in, on, on the net, but. Just on that point of what, what we now call austerity, I mean, it's, it's laughable when I, in some ways mm. what I hear is austerity in the current climate. When you look at the picture of Newport Football Club, 1946-47, it, 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 there's about half a dozen different styles of shirt there. Um, some have been totally washed out, so the colour's gone into a sky blue yeah. practically. Some have got white sleeves. Um, behind them is the, uh, the dock track ends with half its roof missing. Um, and it's it's just um, it's it's quite humbling. I mean, that's what I would call it austerity. Uh, yeah. Uh, visibly poor. It was harder for the fans harsh. though, yeah, because they didn't know what replica top to wear that day. <laughs> it might not match the teams. <laughs> no replica tops. Back that, that's then, probably it? where the hatred came from because the players have run out and we're like, oh, I've got the wrong top on. <laughs> there we go. Two world wars covered in an hour. Not bad. And one mention of the ball war. So, and you've know, got the ball war mentioned in NFC start. Um, great stuff. I want to thank Neil Crazy Hawks Andrews for coming on the show again. Good to have you back, mate. And, Welcome. Um, we're looking forward to the start of the season. Um, fingers crossed that we have a bright one. Hopefully, yeah. Although, talking to kits, I really don't like the new one. <laughs> You don't like the new kit. It, it reminds me of Peterborough. Um, I, I don't, can't put my finger on it. I quite, it just, I quite liked it. I, I don't know. It will probably grow on me. It, it could be the socks that do it. But I've never been a fan of the white sleeves. I've never been a fan of the white sleeves. I don't know why. But no. it's never appealed to me. Um, but we'll see how we go. If, if we win in it, I don't care. As long I as we win, I don't care. I think it's a standard Millwall response. As soon as the new kit is announced, you have to call it shit. It's just, it's in the DNA, isn't it? It's, it's, no, the, it's no, the first we've, we've, had, like. we've had a few over the years that, you know, you I'm look at... Like our season's kit, to be yeah. honest. I thought it was okay. It's funny, my favourite of recent years, and this will be controversial, was the old away Captain Morgan kit. The red the and red black, black stripes. You like that? I did oh, because no. when I first started following Millwall, we wore red shirts and black shorts as our way kit. None of this gay yellow. <laughs> Can I say yellow on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I am. I, I think it's always the the kits that are, are in use when you first go. I mean, my first game was 1972 because I'm ancient, and we played in the famous all white strip, mm. and that to me is a Millwall kit. That's that's the classic kit, and that's what I would go back to at the drop of a hat. 
But if we must have um, a blue kit, then I, I quite like the dark blue. I think it harks back That's to our, um, our I mean, roots. I first went in 76, so not long after you. And as shaken back from half away, me and him, same thing. The old Dutch big lion. That's big what we lion yeah. on the shirt. Someone's been doing a replica kit of that, book a kit. Yeah. And the lion's too small. It's got to be massive. Got to it it's right. got to get it massive. That, that's one of my fondest memories, I think. Incidentally, I'm going to give you a bit of publicity while we've got the, the recording running. Um, check out Neil's Twitter feed, got some fantastic photos on, on there on the fantastic site. Goalkeepers are different on Twitter, and it's at goalkeepers diff, D I W F. At goalkeeper, goalkeeper? Goalkeepers diff. Goalkeepers diff uh, on Twitter. Check it out, fantastic photos. Millwall and, as, as you will have heard, uh, across the whole spectrum of football. Uh, well done, Neil, fantastic. Cheers. Appreciate your time. No worries.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.